Welcome back to the Perfect Puzzle. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm always appreciative and I do look forward to hearing from each and every one of you. You can email me at the email address uh, that's in the information on the podcast site. Uh, thank you for listening and I hope you find this interesting as we go forward through the study of supernatural and our supernatural Bible. Begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your teaching, Lord. And thank you that is so much more to it than we've been led to believe. I ask you, Lord, to fill all of us with your Holy Spirit, that you guide us and that you be with us and help us to understand, Father, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Some of what I'm going to have for you this time is going to be a repetition of some information from the first three sessions. I'm doing that because it's important that you remember these things because what I'm talking about is going to form the foundation of everything we're going to cover in future sessions. It's vitally important you know this ground that we're starting on uh, because if you don't, if you don't get firmly grounded in the supernaturalness of the Bible, all the way, starting and beginning at the, in the book of Genesis, all the way through the book of Revelation, if you don't get this grounding, you're going to be lost as a goose in a hurricane, as my grandmother used to say, because we're going to go forward with this, and we're going to learn much more. I first want to show you how looking at the text closely works. I'm going to use the example that we've already seen about the image of God, because grammar actually matters when you look at the Bible. Now, prepositions are words that we use in English that show relationships between nouns and pronouns. So, now I'm going to have a short lesson about the Hebrew language, because in Hebrew, prepositions can be very elastic. Now, what I mean by that is they can have a range of meanings based on how that preposition is used. You know, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It's a familiar verse. It's got a familiar phrase. Let us make man in our image. Now that word in, in our image, is a translation of its Hebrew preposition. Now that simple preposition there has a lot of nuances in the Hebrew. And one of them is important to properly understand this phrase and the whole verse. And to understand the theology that it's putting across. I want to say first of all, this word image here, we have a flawed idea about about that word. Christians of all denominational persuasions will reference this verse in the image wording to talk about the sanctity of human life. But then they're going to proceed to equate the image with something that's put into humans. Some quality and typically a quality that involves conscious thought. It's a common view but it's deeply flawed as the contents of the womb in the early stages of life don't have any of the qualities that that theologians have always said is the meaning of the image. Now, it does no good to argue these qualities are are in each human as potential realities, because if they are potential realities, that means human life is only potentially sacred, and therefore not sacred until brain development. But... Thankfully, there's a prepositional help for understanding image. 
because the flawed thinking can be remedied with more careful thinking about the preposition in Hebrew that's used in this verse. Uh, it can mean function or capacity in Hebrew. In that case, we translate it with the English word as. I have a you know I have a Hebrew reference grammar open to its discussion of, of, of this word and specifically to its this functional meaning called the bet isitia or the bet of, of identity by Hebrew grammarians. If we view the preposition this way, Genesis 1:26 will read, "Let us create man, humankind, as our image." You know, then in verse 27, the way we read it would be, "So God created man, which is humankind, as his own image." Now that means that the image idea is best understood as a status, that of representing God, because that would be its function. Because, and it's representing God in whatever place or, or sphere he puts us into. The idea becomes verbal in a sense. We represent God on earth. We image God. Now the image then is tied to humanity itself. Not in some ability humans may or may not possess at some point. Or possess unequally. To be human is to be God's image or imager, and life is sacred at all stages, regardless of attributes or not. Now, this understanding of the preposition has powerful theological and ethical ramifications. In terms of, of preaching, teaching, learning, Christians need to know that their theology and ethics isn't rooted in a tradition. It's rooted in the biblical text. Several phrases in Genesis have always puzzled interpreters, but they become more understandable in, in light of what I've just been talking about. In Genesis, 3, in Genesis 3, the serpent, the Hebrew word nakash, says to Eve, For God, Elohim, knows that on the day you both eat from it, then your eyes will be open, and you sh both shall be like gods. Elohim, knowing God and knowing good and evil. So as you can see the word Elohim occurs two times in this in this verse. Now in the first incident the first instance for God knows that word God Elohim is singular because of the grammar. The verb the, the verbal knows is singular in form in Hebrew. While most English translations render the second instance as God, capital G, it should be plural because of the context supplied by the full sentence. And Yahweh, God, said, look, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now the phrase one of us tells us that God is speaking to his council members, the Elohim. This tell us, tells us clearly that the second instance of Elohim should be plural. That fits well where the psalmist notes that humankind was created a little lower than Elohim. We are not a little lower than God. We're light years lower than God. Now the gap is more narrow 
if we assume the reference in the psalm is plural. That's the way the writer of Hebrews takes it. In the in Hebrews, it the writer quotes from the Septuagint. That translation reads the plural angels for Elohim, which is a clear plural. Now Eve is being told that if she violates God's command, she and Adam will become as Elohim, knowing good and evil. Notice that the phrase is knowing good and evil. It's not will be capable of good and evil. As free will beings, Adam and Eve are already capable of disobedience. Like God's holy ones in his counsel, they were imperfect. But Adam and Eve had not yet experienced evil, either by their own commission or as bystanders. Now, the, the phrase with the same Hebrew vocabulary occurs in another place in the Bible. Deuteronomy 139 says, And your little children who you thought shall become plunder, and your sons who do not today know good or bad, shall themselves go there, and I will give it to them, and they shall take possession of it. Now, what's being referred to here in these little children are the generations of, the Israel, of Israel that would arise after the original generation that had escaped from Egypt during the Exodus had died. That first generation was sentenced to wander by God in the desert for 40 years until they died off for their refusal to enter the promised land. The new generation did not know good or evil and would be allowed entrance into the land. Now reading this in context, the meaning is clearly that the second generation was not held morally accountable for the sins of their parents. Though as children they were under the authority of their parents, they had no decision-making authority in the matter, and therefore they were not willing participants. So they were not considered liable. They were innocent. Now that same perspective makes sense in Genesis 3. Prior to knowing good and evil, Adam and Eve were innocent. They had never made a willing, conscious decision to disobey God. They had never seen an act of disobedience either. When they fell, that changed. They did indeed know good and evil, just as God and the rest of his heavenly council members, including the Nakash, the serpent. Now, acknowledging God's foreknowledge and also the genuine free will of humankind, especially with respect to the fall, raises some obvious questions. Was the fall predestined? If so, how, if it was, how was the disobedience of Adam and Eve free? How are they truly responsible? You know, we aren't told much in Genesis about how human freedom works in relation to divine attributes like foreknowledge, predestination, and omniscience. So we have to go look elsewhere in Scripture for some clarification. Now let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 23 as an example. In this account, God appeals to the omniscient God to tell him about the future. Now we already talked about the first king's account of David asking God where he should go to the city of Keilah and whether he'll successfully de defeat the Philistines there. God answers yes in both cases. David goes to Keilah and in, indeed he, he defeats the 
Philistines. But in the second section here, uh, David asked the Lord two questions. Will his nemesis Saul come to Keilah and threaten the city on account of David's presence there? Number two, will the people of Keilah turn him over to Saul to avoid God's wrath? And again, God answers both questions affirmatively. He will come down and they will deliver you. But neither of these events that God foresaw ever actually happened. Once David hears God's answers, he and his men leave the city. Now when Saul discovers this fact in verse 13, he abandons his trip to Keilah. Saul never made it to the city. The men of Keilah never turned David over to Saul. So why is this significant? Because it clearly establishes that divine foreknowledge does not necessitate divine predestination. You know, God foreknew what Saul would do and what the people would of Keilah would do given a set of circumstances. In other words, God foreknew a possibility. But that foreknowledge did not mandate that the possibility was actually predestined to happen. The events never happened, so by definition, they could not have been predestined. Yet the omniscient God did indeed foresee them. You know, predestination and foreknowledge are separable. You ask God what's going to happen if I do this, God's going to tell you what's going to happen. Because we're his children. Now the theological point can be put this way. That which never happens can be foreknown by God, but it is not predestined since it never happened. But what about the things that do happen? They can obviously be foreknown, but were they predestined? Now since we've already saw, seen that foreknowledge in itself does not require predestination, all that foreknowledge truly guarantees is that something is foreknown. If God knows something that some event that, that happens in the future, then he may have predestined that event. But the fact that he foreknew it does not require its predestination if it happens. The only guarantee is that God foreknew it correctly, whether it turns out to be an actual event or a merely possible event. Now this theological point can be put this way. Since foreknowledge doesn't require predestination, foreknown events that happen may or may not have been predestined. Now that set of ideas goes against the grain of several modern theological systems. Some of those systems presume that foreknowledge requires, requires predestination, so everything must be predestined, all the way from the fall to the Holocaust, to what you'll choose off a dinner menu. Others dilute foreknowledge by proposing that God doesn't foreknow all possibilities, since all possibilities can't happen, or they propose other universes where all the possibilities happen. Now, those ideas are not necessary in light of this and other passages that echo the same fundamental idea. Foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. Now, things we discussed earlier are going to allow us to take this discussion further. God may foreknow an event and predestined that event, but 
that predestination does not necessarily include decisions that lead up to that event. In other words, God may know and he may predestine the end. Or, you know, that, that something is ultimately going to happen without predestining the means to that end. You know, we saw that precise relationship in an earlier session when we looked at some decision making in God's divine counsel. You know, the passage in 1 Kings 22 told us that God can decree something and then leave the means up to the decisions of other free will agents. Now, while the end is sovereignly ordained, the means to that end may or may not be. Now, if your head's not spinning, uh, you are in very good shape for the remainder of this series on supernatural. But an ancient Israelite would have embraced this parsing of foreknowledge and predestination, sovereignty, and free will. He would not have been tripped up by theological tradition. He would have understood that this is the way God himself has decided his rule over human affairs will work. These are Yahweh's decisions and we accept them. Now that has significant application for not only the fall, but the presence of evil in our world in general. God is not evil. There is no biblical reason to argue that God predestined the fall of Adam, though he foreknew it. There is no biblical reason to assert that God predestined all the evil events throughout human history, simply because he foreknew them. There is also no biblical coherence to the idea that God factored all evil acts into his grand plan for the ages. It's a common but flawed, softer perspective adopted to avoid the previous notion that God directly predestines evil events. If unknowingly God if unknowingly am it I'm sorry it unknowingly implies that God's perfect plan needed to incorporate evil acts because, well, because we see them every day. And surely they can't just happen since God foreknows everything. Therefore, says this flawed perspective, they must just be part of how God decided best to direct history. But let me tell you something. God does not need the rape of a child to happen so that good may come. His foreknowledge didn't require the Holocaust as part of a plan that would restore Israel to the land and eventually give us the kingdom on earth. You know, God does not need evil as a means to accomplish anything. You know, God foreknew the fall of Adam. That foreknowledge did not propel the event. God also foreknew a solution to the fall that he himself would guarantee. A solution that entered his mind long before he laid the foundations of the earth. You see, God was ready. The risk was awful, but he loved the notion of humanity too much to call the whole thing off. You know, evil does not flow from a first domino that God himself toppled. You know, evil is the perversion of God's gift of free will. It arises from the choices made by imperfect imagers 
not from God's prompting or any predestination. God does not need evil, but he has the power to take the evil that flows from free will decisions, human or otherwise, and use it to produce good through the obedience of his loyal imagers, who are his hands and feet on the ground, who are us, Christians. All of this means, you know, means that what we choose to do is an important part of things of how things are going to turn out. What we do matters. God has decreed the end to which all things will come. As believers, we are prompted by His Spirit to be the good means to those ends that He has decreed. Yeah, my wife doesn't like for me to say this, but I put it this way. God remembers tomorrow. We don't. You know, but the Spirit's not the only influence. The experiences of our lives involve other imagers, both good and evil, including divine imagers we can't see. The worldview of the biblical author was an animate one where the members of the unseen world interact with humans. Loyal members of God's congregation, his council, are sent to minister to us. They have embraced God's vision of Eden. We are brothers and sisters. Now, other divine beings would oppose God's plan. And in Genesis 3, the original dissident takes center stage. Now, we're just at the beginning of, 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 of our journey into the supernatural of the Bible. But we've learned some key concepts already. Concepts that are going to show up elsewhere in the Bible to form patterns. Other ideas are going to build up to these concepts and the mosaic will start to take form. In other words, it's the perfect puzzle. It all fits together into God's plan. There are several things that will take on more shape and definition as we move forward. You know, God has a defined family. He has a heavenly assembly. He has a council of Elohim. These Elohim are not a replacement for the Trinity, and they don't add to the Trinity. God is among the Elohim. That's where his throne is. But he is superior to all other Elohim. He is their creator and sovereign master. He is unique. Since Jesus is Yahweh in flesh, he too is distinct from and superior to all Elohim. You know, God has no need of a council. Scripture makes it clear that he uses one though. They are his divine family. They are his divine administration. The Elohim serve him to carry out his decrees. But God also has a human family and administration. Their status and function mirror the divine family administration. Just as with the members of the divine council who represent God and what they are tasked to do, humans are God's imaging representatives. You know, just as God doesn't need a, a divine council, he doesn't need humans either. 
but he's chosen to use them to further his intentions for earth. Because heaven and earth are separate but connected realms. God's households operate in tandem toward a mutual destiny. Their points of intersection along the way actually tell us a lot if we can remember them as we develop other threads of biblical theology. With Eden, the divine had come to earth, and earth would be brought into conformity. You know, humans were created to enjoy everlasting access to God's presence. <coughs> we were created to work side by side, side by side with God's loyal Elohim. But this yearning of God's came with risk. It was a risk that he fully knew about, and he accepted. You know, free will in the hearts and hands of imperfect beings, whether they're human or divine, means imagers can opt for their own authority in place of God's. And sadly, that's going to become a pattern. Both of God's households will experience rebellion. The result will be the commencement of a long war against God's original intention. But the good news is there's, there will be an equally committed effort on God's part to preserve, preserve what he began. Now in these first lessons we've learned about God's original home which is the Garden of Eden. The Garden was a place of God's physical presence. It was a locatable spot on the earth where the Creator could meet with humankind and commune with, with humankind in perfect fellowship. When Adam and Eve disobeyed and were kicked out of the garden, our attention is drawn to both what they lost and what they gained. Now what they had lost, of course, was the immediate favor of God. Several curses were to follow them through life. But what they gained is important as well as noted at the conclusion of the story. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Adam's sin caused him to be awakened to knowledge that he had not had before. Adam now had the knowledge of good and evil, and God was not happy. It's time for Adam and Eve to leave the garden and to have the door bolted behind them. As estrangement from God came along with estrangement from his garden. But with the estrangement came a kind of knowledge that would come to haunt humankind. And there, there's going to be more on, on that as we go along in these studies. You know, biblical writers often return to the memory of Eden at other critical moments. For example, during the exodus from Egypt, Israel was led to the place where God would eventually put his name, according to Deuteronomy 12.5. God intended to establish a physical place to identify as his own, and this would have reminded the Israelites of what Adam had earlier enjoyed. In his prophecy, Ezekiel mentions Eden by name, when speaking of the future hope of a restored and faithful Israel in Ezekiel 36-35. Now, this introduces us to the concept of cosmic geography. Land, borders, hills, rivers, even dirt, carried spiritual meaning. Notably, 
because spiritual forces were assumed to exercise territorial ownership. Eden is just the beginning. You need to hang on to this critical idea as we continue in our studies. Now at some point in the story, we're never explicitly told when, how, or why evil spirits came into into existence. There are many unanswered questions regarding the origin of evil spirits or the gods of the first commandment. Tradition and poetry, such as Dante's Inferno, have tended to confuse us, giving us more information than the Bible really has. All we know for sure in returning to our story is that when Adam and Eve left the garden, garden, they were venturing into a world under the dominion of the divine rebel of Eden, who had been cast down to earth, and where rival gods would emerge who are hostile to the people loyal to the true God. Above them the sign flashed, Mankind, you have a problem. Now the problem we learn all too quickly is that heavenly disloyalty among spirits is about to spread to the humans who worship them. To sins of all varieties, mankind will add the act of flagrant rebellion, the kind of rebellion where a man is caught saying intimate things to the person on the other end of the phone. And God's jealousy will burn like a scorned wife who is left alone at her door. Hosea uses a close illustration in Hosea chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Yet they sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. You know, you can now see the urgency of the first commandment. You shall have no other Elohim before me is not talking about giving attention to money or boats or cars or anything else and not giving attention to God. That's not what it's about. It's God's jealous love is on full display pointing directly to the most dangerous element of his creation. The world of supernatural creatures who for some reason enjoy human worship while also it eerily predicts what would happen before the coming of Christ. Exodus 23, verses 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with the Canaanites, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. You know, Isaiah later says in Isaiah chapter 57, You have uncovered yourself to those other than God. You have gone up to them and have enlarged your bed and have made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed. The great commandment was broken. Now it's also interesting to me, the Old Testament writers take very little interest in Adam and Eve. Because their story is not mentioned again in the Old Testament after Genesis chapter 3. But what is not lost to these later writers, however, is Adam's willingness to listen and obey a spirit who was not his creator. He sinned in disobeying a command about a tree and fruit. 
but even more so, he sinned in obeying the wrong voice. He disobeyed one Elohim to obey another Elohim, and this is going to form the larger story of the Old Testament. Judges 10.14, God speaks to the Israelites, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Yes, no wonder God, Adam hid from God. He was afraid his disloyalty is going to be discovered. Now, in this light, consider how the sons of God appear in Genesis 6. It's almost as though they are expected players on the stage. Now, the title, Sons of, in Genesis 6, can have a simple meaning of those to be identified as. as. You know, much like sons of men can simply mean human in 2 Samuel 7.14. When played off the daughters of men in Genesis 6.4, the clear meaning of the story is that Elohim inserted themselves into human affairs. I know it sounds odd, but as I constantly have to remind myself, you can't get into the habit of taking all the odd verses out of the Bible. The Bible teaches us to believe in a truly supernatural world created by God to include a society of men and spirits who have immediate contact with each other on various levels and in mysterious ways. In short, the Bible presumes a world in which God and God's liturgy regularly involve themselves with humans. You know, as one of my teachers liked to say as he turned to the next page in his notes, get used to it. Now, as we've discussed before, the image of God is best understood as a role we play in God's creation. It is our stewardship to rule our planet and to rule it well. Now, the idea of stewardship is sometimes detectable in how the Bible speaks of glory. We glorify someone when we speak well of them. You can look at Acts 13.48. When used as a noun, glory can refer to doing well with what one owns or has been given. Proverbs 25.2. Jeremiah 21.5. Isaiah 46.13 says, Israel my glory. Yeah, so we can think of our image as a gift from God a stewardship of rule which we have unfortunately lost because of our disloyalty to our Creator, as Paul puts it in Romans 3.23, fallen short of the glory of God. Humankind has handed the privilege of rule over to the beings they have chosen to worship. You know, when people are full of care about something, we can call them careful. A situation is stressful when it's full of stress. So it is, it is the same in the Bible when dealing with the words faith and faithful. When a person has faith and has a lot of it, he or she is said to be faithful. Now the English language often distinguishes faith from faithfulness. You know, the first having to do with what we believe and the second one with how we act. And that is desperately unfortunate. Faith and faithful 
arise from the same Hebrew and Greek words. Now the importance of this understanding relates to the meaning of faith and why the story of salvation in both testaments, old and new, revolves around becoming faithful to the correct God. The issue, as we will see, is one of loyalty. Because the sin of idolatry will not be like just any other sin. It will be the sin. It's the sending our loyalty to another person or being who is not our creator. That is why salvation in the Bible is always described in faithing terms. You know, God is not ultimately looking for better behavior. He is looking for faith. He's looking for loyalty. Uh, You may have heard of the term spiritual warfare. And while it appears this idea can be overused, there is a sense in which we need to speak about it now, just after Adam and Eve leave the garden. Because Adam is headed into a real war where temptation to honor and serve and love other gods will be the basic temptation of humankind. Look at Jeremiah 8 verse 2. Wars between nations will be thought of in terms of disputes to be settled by gods. Judges 11 verses 23 to 24. And Joshua's battles leave no doubt as to God's ultimate control of the enemy. We can refer to Joshua chapter 11 verses 19 and 20. As a practical matter, God will later call the kind of sufferings that relate to our spiritual war as sufferings of the gospel in 2 Timothy 1.8. Now, we're going to return to the concept of spiritual warfare in later discussions. And we'll hold those off until next time. Again, this has been the perfect puzzle. I thank you for listening, and I look forward to having you return. Thank you very much.